Welcome to Life on Less Meds, a podcast that reveals the truth about drug side effects and the best strategies to manage them. And now your host, Dr. Yosef Wittering. Hello, I'm Dr. Yosef Wittering. I'm here on behalf of the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Best Practices. And um, today we're going to be interviewing Alexis Ritvo, who's the medical director for one of the, I think it's kind of the largest organization out there at the moment, who's um, really promoting uh, the safe prescribing of benzodiazepines. And um, and we're going to talk about some of the projects and uh, I guess some of the work that's been going on um, in this space, because you know a lot of people who may be listening to this, they may have had really bad experiences with benzodiazepines. They've been harmed. They're wondering, you know, how does stuff like this happen? And um, what are people doing about it? So this conversation is really about the, what are kind of organizations doing about this? And um, I'm so pleased to have Alexis here. So Alexis, I'm going to turn it over to you. And I'd just like you to, to go ahead and uh, introduce yourself. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. So as you said, I'm uh, the medical director for the Alliance and have been for the past year, um, took over from one of the founding members, uh, Dr. Stephen Wright, um, and have actually met him through our work together in Colorado um, with the Colorado Consortium for Prescription Drug Abuse and their Benzodiazepine Action Workgroup that we co-founded. Um, and there's been a lot of great work being done between the Alliance and the Benzodiazepine Action Workgroup and some of our other organizations um, like the Benzodiazepine Information Coalition. Mm-hmm. Um, I think all of these groups have some very similar goals and take kind of different perspectives. Um, uh, so the Alliance has really been focused on how do we decrease the overall initial prescribing of benzodiazepines, as well as uh, how do we help make sure that those that are put on benzodiazepines are um, prescribed them more within the, the bounds of what we know is safe use of them or safer use, and that uh, individuals that are started on them really understand what the risks are of these medications, especially if they end up on them longer term. Um, so some of our projects have, have really related to that. I think um, with those organizations I mentioned, worked on a uh, prescribing guidance as well as a, a de-prescribing guidance. And I say guidance instead of guideline because these were not you know, rigorous trials that were yet done. Certainly we need those, um, uh, but these are rather kind of a review of the literature and, and evidence that is out there. Um, and pulling it together to say, here's kind of what the evidence says and the recommendations um, of, of how you can more safely prescribe these, what you should make sure your patients know about. Um, and there are links to those both on the Alliance website. They're, you know, brief two-page documents that we hope that both prescribers will utilize as well as that um, patients would potentially take to their prescriber um, if they felt like they had not been well-informed or uh, wanted to make sure their prescriber was aware of these things. Um, and it's, it's similar on the, on the tapering or de-prescribing side. It's a, a two-page document that kind of gives an overview of the many different ways people might approach tapering um, and especially warning folks that um, going too quickly until you know how someone might respond. Um, we've seen a lot of, of people do poorly or become pretty destabilized. Um, I guess Another related project that we've done is um, some of the research or review papers that a group of us have been working on in the Alliance. Um, one was trying to come up for up with the term uh, for what we were going to call this 
protracted withdrawal state that a lot of individuals mm-hmm. who are on prescribed benzodiazepines um, seem to develop because uh, it doesn't seem to quite fit, you know, calling it protracted withdrawal or post-acute withdrawal, which are, are used a lot in the field of addiction, I should mention. I, so I'm an addiction psychiatrist by training. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, But what we're dealing with with prescription benzodiazepines is most people taking them as prescribed and developing physical dependence and then having difficulty coming off. So a group of us kind of went through a process of, and I, I believe you were included in this this group of, mm-hmm. of email um, of voting on different terms to try to come up with terms that we thought more more accurately represented this protracted withdrawal state and um, landed on the benzodiazepine induced neurological dysfunction um, or bind to try to kind of capture the fact that we're seeing people uh, injured by benzodiazepines and that it has this multi-systemic, but especially very focused on kind of um, brain and, and, and uh, nerves um, impact on people. Um, and so now do, trying to get some uh, papers published that help explain both how we came up with this term as well as some of the survey results we've seen mm-hmm. um, of individuals uh, suffering from BIND. And I think uh, and I'll pick up there because um, I think it's it, it's so needed because, um, yes, it's, it's, it's common. Like, so, that, so the constellation of these neurological and psychiatric problems which occur in a rare few people who are exposed to benzos, sometimes it happens when they're on it, sometimes it happens when they're withdrawn too quickly. Um, mm-hmm it doesn't really quite fit the withdrawal term because when you go and you talk to a physician and you say, Oh, I have this protracted withdrawal. It's almost like they assume that you're going to have this linear recovery where each month is going to be better than the next. And, um, and they also think that, okay, maybe this is something that could go on for a handful of months and that's about it. And that doesn't really fit the clinical course of, um, uh, I guess what people are suffering from. So Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you wanted to kind of expand on that, but that seems to be the main kind of concept for me, like finding something that really kind of captures it correctly. Yeah. Right. The The parallel I'm increasingly drawn mm-hmm. to make for people is what we're seeing with long COVID. Um, mm-hmm. So you have this, you know, granted, we're talking about something that we think that is induced by a prescription medication versus something induced by a virus. But, you know, this syndrome that is mm-hmm. multi symptom, I mean, multi-systemic, multi-symptomatic. Um, I think with long COVID, there people are more apt to, to truly believe it's there because we have so many people affected all at once. Um, and I think for those that have been injured by benzodiazepines, many of them have struggled to get, especially the medical community, to believe them, um, that it's caused from the benzodiazepines, depending on what their symptoms are or if they're coming and going um, mm-hmm. a lot. Um, I know they refer to it often as window windows and waves um, of yes. their symptoms. Um, and, and so I'm hoping that as we see, you know, more, more research and traction with things like long COVID, we can kind of emulate some of their successes uh, to get more traction with educating the, the public and the medical community about BIND and trying to understand it better and figure out how to better treated as well as uh, 
prevent it. I mean, I'd love to have a better idea of how to predict who's at greater risk for this as well. Cause I'm sure as you've seen some patients do just okay. Like with being on a benzo and tapering off and others really suffer and, and are super sensitive to even the, you know, these micro tapers. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that, that is totally correct. Um, and yeah, I guess, I mean, one of the things that at least I noticed that um, people kind of struggle with is is that, you know, you could take a CNS medication, you know, a psychiatric drug, and you could develop uh, enduring side effects, you know, from some kind of, I guess, presumed underlying damage and correlation. I, I mean, other things that I think of is, you know, tardive dyskinesia on the antipsychotics, some of the sexual dysfunction um, with the SSRIs, which may endure for months after people stop and sometimes years, which are now coming out. So I, I kind of consider this just like another piece of this kind of growing evidence that, hey, we should kind of be more aware of the consequences of long-term uh, use of these medications. Um, and I just think it's, um, yeah, um, just a great effort to try and find the name that actually kind of really fits and makes sense. Because mm-hmm. like, you, like you said, you know, when you have waves and windows, if you go in and, you know, you're feeling great one time and you say, oh, I think this is past. And then a month later, you have a big wave of these neurological symptoms. Traditionally, the physicians are going to say, okay, well, this is not related to that because what's this kind of strange clinical course when it comes and goes? That's not, that's not any kind of withdrawal I've ever heard of. Yeah. 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 And more, I mean, more similar to what we might call relapsing remitting in something like, you know, multiple sclerosis. Um, so I think some of those models are there in other neurological diseases and psychiatric. Um, uh, and I think we just have to do a better job of believing our patients and and listening to them and realizing that everyone's so unique that these medications and, and everything else going on in their unique uh, bot, you know, body is going to have its own unique presentation. That's, that's a nice, that's interesting that you said, you know, we really have to listen to the patients and believe, because I feel like a lot of people have had experiences where, you know, they've gone to academic centers or they've talked to doctors and, and um, maybe they haven't really been kind of believed about uh, these problems. So I guess I wanted to ask you kind of how, what was your journey to this space and to kind of, I guess, I mean, recognizing that protracted withdrawal was a thing. How did, how did you stumble here? And then become interested enough to become the medical director of the Alliance and really kind of yeah. devote a lot of your time to this. So I knew I, I come from a family of psychiatrists. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so my, my parents are both psychiatrists. My grandfather was my uncle. I'm something like number, I don't know, 10 mm-hmm. on, on the, on the Ritvo side. Um, and so I, I knew I was interested in psychiatry when I was in medical school. And then I increasingly knew I was interested in addiction um, I think in part because I liked the the heavy focus on um, kind of the neurophysiology of, of withdrawal management, mm-hmm. um, uh, as well as, you know, this was a group of patients that often are greatly dismissed or not believed. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet if you hang in there with them and you really come to understand the disease of addiction, um, uh you can see these patients get markedly better and really turn their lives around. Um, so I found it really rewarding. Um, and, and then as I was going through training, also seeing, I mean, that, uh, I guess my residency was really, you know, 
started in 2012 at the beginning of the opioid epidemic Mm -hmm. um, and saw people, you know, increasingly kind of struggling with how do we treat pain when they're, you know, now these opioids are dangerous, are seen as dangerous and, and highly um, addictive. And then similarly started to see that apply to benzodiazepines. Um, But I think we're so quick to, to make something all or nothing or black and white, you know, it's either good or it's bad, You, you know, someone's on a benzodiazepine, they need to be off of it. Um, and then would see people really struggle because they'd be tapered too quickly. Um, it would be seen as this like power struggle with the patient or clearly if they were um, reluctant to go down on their dose or come off, you know, this mm-hmm. must be a sign that it's addiction um, rather than, you know, I, I don't know. I think then with time working with more of these patients, realizing like, these patients are really suffering. They were given this medication as something they were told would help and probably initially did. Um, and now they're being told they're not supposed to be on this medication. Many mm-hmm. of them don't weren't told or, and, or don't remember because of the distress they were in. And it wasn't clearly conveyed that there was risks with staying on these long-term um, and the physical dependence and rebound mm-hmm. symptoms and all these things. Um, and now feel like we're telling them they're doing something bad and wrong and it's very confusing. And while they may identify that they're having side effects or things they don't like from these medications, they also are worried that living without them may feel even worse. Um, mm-hmm. And so they feel like they're in this horrible place and suddenly the, the, the people that are supposed to be helping them either don't believe them or, or if they feel like they're, um, being labeled as either a difficult patient or, or something like that. And so um, I saw this real opportunity that similar to addiction mm-hmm. where we could truly partner with these patients and, um, you know, take a, a an approach of let's see what we can do that will be better. And that might be getting you down on the dose. That might be with time mm-hmm. getting you completely off. And I found it's really hard to predict which patients are going to tolerate what, um, you know, I, uh, some are able to taper pretty quickly, come off completely, some taper down just till the very end, and then really don't do well getting off the last little bit for probably a variety of both physiologic and psychological reasons. Mm-hmm. And just needing to like partner with the patients and, and really try to continuously assess those kind of risks and benefits. Um, and at the same time, helping revise how we have the initial conversation if we consider starting these medications. Um, <laughs> and so trying um, to do that. So as I, I do, I went from addiction psychiatry fellowship training to becoming on faculty with the University of Colorado. Um, and a lot of my work is actually in kind of general outpatient psychiatry. So a lot of it, while there's also a fair amount of co-occurring substance use disorders, there's a lot, a lot of patients just being treated for um, anxiety or insomnia that have ended up on benzodiazepines chronically. Um, And so I found a real opportunity to work with the residents who are treating these patients and try to maybe alter their approach to working with these patients so that it's both more pleasant and more beneficial for everyone. Great, great. I I think um, this is probably a good time um, for me to ask you, because I mean, you you've recently done the guidance on um, 
uh, on, I guess, the benzodiazepine prescribing, and you're also involved in teaching, I guess, the next generation of, um, of, of physicians at the University of Colorado mm-hmm. about these medications. So from your perspective, what, what do you wish people knew about these medications when they, um, uh, I guess, when they started uh, their patients on them? You know, I guess, what do you wish prescribers knew? So the physicians. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, I think I wish more physicians knew and had seen and, and believed of, uh, about bind and that some mm-hmm. individuals have, you know, ha- have whatever this predisposing, you know, probably multifactorial uh, predisposition to bind and really suffer and, and really struggle as a result. Um, and we don't yet know how to predict who it's going to be. Um, and so always keeping that in mind when, when starting these meds that, you know, that could have that and making sure patients really do get, and that's probably, you know, not just having them sign something, um, or not just assuming they know what these meds are, but that they truly understand, you know, how that this medication once taken regularly for really a week or more you're going to develop physical dependence and what, what that means. I mean, mm-hmm. I just saw a patient today who, as they're getting older, their you know primary care doc said, we should probably uh, have you stop this medication because it will start affecting your memory and didn't very clearly say, but we can't or shouldn't stop it suddenly. And the individual trying to be a good patient and also being, you know, not wanting to have cognitive impairment as they got older, stopped it cold turkey and had a withdrawal seizure. So clearly there's not adequate education going on um, uh, with our patients a lot of times um, that's either assume they understand these risks or that really they're not that, you know, risky just because we do prescribe, they have been prescribed frequently. Um, So I think that's. Yeah. Okay. So, so I think definitely the risk of bind is, should be, I guess uh, at the top of the list, um, um, I guess another thing uh, which is interesting with these medications is that um, folks develop dependence to the um, uh, anxiolytic or the hypnotic effect pretty quickly, you know, that Mm -hmm. the efficacy of the medication um, really can wear off um, within, uh, I guess, you know, maybe three, four months or something like that in some individuals and, and then, uh, you end up taking something and it's not really doing much for you. In fact, maybe maybe it's making your anxiety worse. And I know there's some lines of research out there where um, um, where they've looked at things like alprazolam taken long-term and um, it actually over time does, does not seem to maintain its uh, efficacy response, uh, mm-hmm. which is terrible. You know, if you have someone on a medication for several years, but it's really not doing so much um, for them. And, you know, you're ex- essentially exposing them to this, this, this long-term risk. And a lot of the time, I feel like, at least in um, a lot of places uh, th- th- these days, uh, appointment visits are pretty short. You know, if, if you're going to a family practice doctor and maybe you spend three quarters of the time talking about your cardiovascular disease, they may not have time to kind of say, well, you know, let's have a look at this benzodiazepine that you've been on. Let, let me understand why you were on it. Maybe it was just this brief thing that happened in the past that was related to contextual stresses, but now now it's just kind of been continued for years. Mm-hmm. I feel like those conversations um, 
they're less likely to happen, you know, when uh, I guess medicine is kind of being practiced in these really kind of short snippets where people are expected to do, you know, a million things at once, you know, to, to yeah. manage patients. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to see on my, I don't know if it's a short list, but long list of, of interventions I'd like to try in the setting I'm in is something like I know a group in Canada did where they, they sent out kind of a brochure with education about the risks, long-term risks of benzodiazepines to any patient that was on a long-term benzodiazepine. I think it was through, maybe through the pharmacy and many of them then became interested in uh, trying to taper. Um, this is the, the Tannenbaum, um, uh, the names now escaping me the name of the trial, but you want to say like encompass or something, but um, Mm -hmm. the biggest problem is they, they did a pretty quick taper. And I imagine there's some people that did not tolerate it. Um, uh, But just the idea of, you know, if you approach people non-judgmentally about, you know, educating them about these things, I mean, most people aren't going to say, Oh, as I get older, I would like to be on something that, might make my memory worse, my attention worse, and put me at an increased risk for falls. Or when I, you know, between doses, I'm going to feel more anxious and potentially get shaky. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so if you can find them in a moment where they're able to have the time and space to think about that, um, then maybe we can get their buy-in to try to uh, slowly taper yeah. it. Oh yeah, and then and, and and to boot, you know, and if you're on this, you may develop some kind of permanent neurological problems that are absolutely debilitating. And yeah. there's no way we could predict who that happens to, um, which right. is the most frightening thing about it. Um, uh, uh, shifting topics now. I mean, we we, we talked a little bit about uh, deprescribing, but you've written a deprescribing uh, guidance as well. So I'm, um, I'd like to ask you, what um, what do you what do you wish that uh, physicians and prescribers knew about um, tapering patients off benzodiazepines? Yeah, I mean, and I, I will no way, in no way take full credit for it. Steve, Stephen Wright did a lot of the heavy lifting along mm-hmm. with a lot of the, the members of the of the work group that, that worked on it. Um, but I'm glad to be able to say I was part of it. Um, I think first and foremost, there's no one size fits all. Um, I think it's especially with this with so many potential factors and symptoms that individuals can experience um you really have to figure out for each patient what's going to work with approaching it and realize i mean like you were saying with the symptoms themselves coming and going that how you need to approach the taper may change over time um and so i think you know i tell the residents you know you want to start as low of a reduction initially as you can um, because you want to get the patient's buy-in. You want them to feel mm-hmm. like they can handle this. If you you do too big of a cut initially and they feel really destabilized, um, uh, you know, significant distress or dysfunction, they're not going to want to proceed anymore. Um, they're not going to have the like, confidence that they're going to be able to do this. Um, so I think knowing that, I think, you know, thinking of things from, you know, what formulations do these meds come in, um, mm-hmm. making sure patients understand, you know, we don't have great evidence yet of, do you stay on the same med and try to taper it? Do you um, cross taper to long acting? Um, 
I have several patients that are doing microdose tapers and that seems to work very well for them. Mm-hmm. I've had other patients that while I think they might have benefited from doing that from a medication dose standpoint, they don't have the um, kind of health literacy level or the support um, to be able to to do something like pipette measure and and do all these things. So we're, mm-hmm. we're have to deal, deal with the limitations of, you know, the resources that they yep. have. Um, and so you're kind of having to, to balance all those things, trying to make sure, um, you know, what other supports are you going to put in place? Um, I think while you try not to go back up um, as you're tapering, I think also realizing and I say to my residents, I'm like, this is a marathon, not a sprint. So, you know, if we have to, if we have to stop or pause at a given dose, we've still gotten them on effectively less medication, then that's still great. Like, I think people can get frustrated if we only talk about getting them off and then they're not able to recognize their achievements of getting down on the dose and reducing that risk as it is. Um, so I think those are some of the, the things that the, the pre, uh, the de-prescribing guidance tries to convey as well as just, you know, really looking at, um, how else can we effectively and more safely treat the symptoms that we're initially treating? Um, ideally everyone would have the time and ability to connect with, you know, therapy resources, but unfortunately that's not just, that's not a reality in a lot of places. Um, but figuring out, you know, other supports, um, actually there's, we're, we're working on a, a peer support curriculum with, on the consortium, um, side. Um, so that would like, that should offer additional kind of more evidence-based support to individuals. Um, and trying to think what else is in the, in the deep prescribing guidance. I think, you know, there's, we don't have a lot of evidence of what else can help these patients symptomatically from a medication standpoint. I think often less is more. Many of these folks are kind of hypersensitive. Mm-hmm. Their, their system has become very hyper like sensitive to the medications. Um, so it is really kind of unique to each patient of if and when they want to try something else to see if it helps symptoms, but we don't have good evidence. And I, and I certainly have spoken with plenty of patients where they felt like any you know, adding anything made them just feel worse. Um, mm-hmm. So I think those are all things to important for prescribers to keep in mind. Yeah. And, you know, when you're talking about uh, when you were describing, I guess, your, the, the, guide, the, the guidance and your experience treating patient, I was also thinking about how important it is to have that term bind because it really is two separate things. I mean, so at least the way I see it, and I, I treat these patients a lot in clinical practice, mm-hmm. it's um, you can have someone with no neurological injuries. They don't have that. And, you know, they just, they became aware that they wanted to come off this medication. And that's fairly straightforward. You know, we kind of think, you know, five to 10% cuts, you know, we go slower if they need to. And, you know, we wait, you know, two to three weeks between dose reductions. We see how they're doing. And it's pretty quick. Um, you know, this is something that could take place over three to six months and they're off and there's no complications. The other beast is treating bind, um, which, yeah. I mean, it's not just people kind of having anxiety. I mean, we, we've got uh, folks in our practice who are debilitated by neurological symptoms. You know, they have electric shock sensations kind of coursing through their body. They have no appetite. Um, you know, they feel really depressed, really anxious. Um, 
as well. They have paresthesias and kind of managing that. It's, you know, we're not talking about managing, I guess, withdrawal anymore. We're talking about managing an insult to to the nervous system where, where, where pain is a problem, where eating is a problem. And then, you know, as you said, you know, this is a, I mean, this is, I won't say it's rare. There's more and more people having this, but it's not everyone. So it's not like we'll ever have mm-hmm. clinical trial research on these things. So there's a couple doctors out there, you know, yourself, myself, other people in the community, and we're kind of flying by the seat of our pants trying to help these people, uh, you know, just take it one day at a time because um, at least my experience shows the majority of people do recover. If you, if you can just keep mm-hmm. them comfortable enough, you know, uh, as time goes on, these these neurological symptoms uh, tend tend to improve. So, yeah. Um, and I think bind really speaks to that. You know, we're we're not talking about a withdrawal problem. We're talking about uh, this kind of neurological devastation that that yeah, happens with some people. Yeah. Extremely well put. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we need. Yeah. I, I hope someday we can get some more research. But yeah, I think this is where I see. You know, long COVID has the 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 benefit of affecting so many people at the same, like in such a short period of time that mm-hmm. that really drives, uh, um, you know, the ability to do research and fund research. Um, yeah. so, but hopefully, I mean, we, there's some newer, a few documentary documentaries that have come out in the past year that I think draw some attention to it. And so hopefully if there's some, uh, kind of increased public awareness and, you know, maybe, um, someone that becomes particularly interested in it because of a affected loved one um, that has uh, you know, some further ability to help us move the, move the dial and get more information. Uh, that'd be wonderful. Yeah. No, and, the, and the movies are great. And I'm glad you kind of talked about awareness because I think a frustration that a lot of people may have, you know, if they've been injured by this, it's like, what are people doing about it? Because, um, um, at least from my perspective, and maybe you share this, I'm, I'm not sure, but there seems to be a gap. So, you know, we, ha- we have drugs that get approved through the FDA. They come out with, with, with labeling and, you know, there's, there's warnings in there and such, but it's not really affecting clinical practice because what we're seeing on the ground is a lot of people left on these medications, not really informed about things. Um, and then, and then I guess we treat the harms. And so, you, you know, I'd like to ask, so I, I know the Alliance um, and also, I guess, you know, your work with the Colorado Consortium. I mean, it's it's like a multi-pronged approach to mm-hmm. uh, getting the word out ab- about these things. And I mean, you mentioned movies, although I don't, I don't think you're affiliated with them, but you may know the people there. Right. But there's also things like, I know you guys have done symposiums, you know, you're creating these guidances. Um, I mean, right now we're doing some social media things, but I was hoping just from your perspective, you could, uh, you know, tell the audience out there, you know, what what are the things, you know, these these groups are doing right now to to try and get the word out there to um to prescribers and patients, so you know, more people don't run into these same kind of problems. Yeah, yeah, I think, um, and and mm. thinking both at you know a local to regional to national level, and then also on a mm. um, doing education at the various levels of medical education, not because any one presentation will greatly impact uh, prescribers, but at least it may, you know, put uh, plant a little seed that they'll think about it um, when they see a patient and the patient complains of having, you know, some uh, um, unexplained symptoms and they see they've been on uh, benzodiazepine for a long time. Um, 
or have been recently started, I guess is also potential. Um, so on the education side, you know, trying to make sure that whether it's in undergraduate or medical school, graduate residency, and then postgraduate or continuing medical education that we're going to different conferences and presenting and uh, getting the word out about this. Um, I think that's first place in, um, in Colorado, we've been able to push through some uh, or support some legislation to help um, decrease, hopefully, the initiation of benzodiazepines. So modeling off of what has been successful with opioids, um, we're able to get a bill passed that limits the initial prescription of a benzodiazepine to 30 days or less mm -hmm. um, if someone hasn't been prescribed in the last 12 months. Um, and the hope is that, you know, someone's not just given a prescription with a multitude of refills and sent on their way, but that it's encouraging providers to revisit the conversation of what else they can do to help these symptoms that doesn't carry the same long-term risk. Um, uh, that just went into place about a year ago. So I, I don't yet know, you know, that they've been able to look at the impact, um, but hopefully other states might take a similar approach of, of trying to look at um, how to um, put some policy in place that could limit prescribing. Um, same in that legislation, they also in added safe prescribing and tapering of benzodiazepines to a list of potential topics that providers are required to learn about um, and get a certain number of hours prior to renewing their license. Um, and so I think, um, you know, that's all helping kind of get the, the word out there um, mm -hmm. and hopefully eventually influence practice. Then of course there's the kind of larger uh, federal level. So with the FDA, mm -hmm. you know, the Alliance um, before I joined, it was really instrumental in helping get the black box warning. Um, mm -hmm. The newest one, the updated one that, that really describes both the physical dependence and really bind um, as well as, um, you know, has tried to, to find various angles, whether it's potential um, educational trials or mm -hmm. uh, work, working with different organizations to get literature, evidence reviews, um, to try to see just how all, all the places we can potentially try to um, influence this, the overall, both patterns of prescribing as well as knowledge and understanding of of bind. And so, um, you know, it's hard to see exactly where um, the impact lies, but hopefully kind of just taking uh, mm -hmm. all these different approaches, you know, a few things stick and move, move the, the needle a little bit. Yeah, no, I, I love that. And, you know, just hearing you talk about that and I guess spending some time on, on your website and on, I guess, the Alliance's website and seeing everything that's been done. I mean, I, I cannot overstate how big of a deal it was to change the boxed warning um, because uh, bind slash protracted withdrawal, um, I think that was the first time that a major health authority, you know, and, and this is, you know, government health authority like FDA, mm -hmm. you know, even including groups like the American Psychiatric Association or maybe addiction groups really kind of came behind that diagnosis and just said, this is real, you know, and they list protracted withdrawal and they're under that name. And, mm -hmm. um, and they list out the symptoms. And, um, and interestingly enough, um, you know, I was a medical expert for a case not, not so long ago. 
and we ha- and we had a favorable decision you know that was that was settled where someone who had protracted withdrawal where they were um injured essentially someone started them on a medication and it was uh just it kept on getting refilled even though it was tamazepam and the guidelines you know in the label it says 14 days only you know and and then the provider had just kind of kept on uh refilling it and uh, eventually they developed um, protracted withdrawal slash bind when they were abruptly withdrawn from it. And we got a favorable settle- settlement. And and things like uh, that could never have happened if it unless there was in the label. Yeah. yeah. And I so, would love to do a brief survey of prescribers to see yeah. how many people are actually aware of the update label. I think it might be um, hmm. underwhelming. Um but it's there and, and that yeah, yeah that just certainly holds credit, you know, credibility and points to it. Um, that, and that it really at, is something prescribers need to know. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, this legislation in Colorado is great because, you know, once once that's the state law, I mean, hospital systems, you know, they, they will need to put quality systems in place to make sure that their physicians are reviewing it. And I hate to say this, but some of that annoying stuff is really what influences patient care. You know, when you have someone yeah. looking over your shoulder and just saying, hey, this is not going, you know, with the state law at the moment, Think about something else, um, and then I mean another thing out there as well is it, you know it can be fear. You know if you're not aware of these things now that they're labeled, you know in warnings and precaution where they put the most important side effects of the drug, where essentially anyone prescribing them should know and should inform patients about. Mm-hmm. I mean that's where these things are now. So um, uh, I mean you, you, I mean you could end up in a lawsuit as well, and I hate to say that that motivates people, but we both know it certainly does. Um, yeah. 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 I think, yeah. Um, I, yeah. And, and I think what can be hard is for people to understand that, like you described with the case, you're the, the expert on that. It goes both ways. While we need to try to not, you know, start fewer people when we start them, have them be on lowest dose for as short as time as possible for the people that have been on these on a really long time, we need to, per, you know, approach it very cautiously and carefully, because if we decrease them too quickly or they stop abruptly, that's now, you know, can be very disruptive, dangerous, um, yeah, uh, and disabling. So that's um, a good, that's, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Just because this warning comes out all the more reason to be more, you know, more cautious. Um, and and I, don't, I don't know if you saw this in your practice, but um, when I was, um, when this happened, we got a lot of people who were, who came to us saying, my physician wants to take me off in two weeks. You know, he, he, <laughs> he won't hear it any other way. And so they, they came to our practice to do a more gradual taper. And that's exactly the problem that you're talking about. You know, um, th- there are these gaps there, you know, okay, the risks are in there and it's getting communicated to people. But, you know, this information that, you know, you're generating through your work about how to safely get people off. I mean, that still needs to get out there to make sure that, uh, like people aren't hurt because I'm sure inadvertently when this warning came out, some people were tapered too rapidly and, and, and now they've got these problems. So I yeah. mean, there's, yeah. there's, there's a lot of work to be done here. Well, and we need to learn from what we saw with um, the, the, op- I mean, opioid epidemic, right? I mean, there's a lot of people <laughs> that did get harmed because they were forced to taper off their opioids. Um, oh, they become suicidal, right? You know, that, that's yeah, something there's that research happens. out there that, yeah know we do you do have to consider is some of these mm. some of these individuals will do better staying on on some mm-hmm. of the the medication 
Um, you know, this is, this is iatrogenic and while we should decrease who we start on it, you can't just take people off, um, quickly. So, um, yeah, it's, it's challenging work, but also extreme, yeah, extremely, um, rewarding as you, as you work with these individuals and hopefully we can do them justice Mm -hmm. and get them both functioning better and feeling better and, um, Mm -hmm. and improve how we, we utilize these medications and kind of all, uh, at least in, in our line of work, all psychiatric medications. Sure. I I think around about now might be a good time to wrap. Um, but I, I guess I want to say, I mean, you may be aware of this, but in case you're not, I mean, uh, your work and the stuff that the Alliance is doing and the consortium, it means so much for people, you know, especially people who have been hurt. You know, the fact that someone is working on educating physicians, the fact that people are working on how to help people with withdrawal problems. I think oftentimes people are going, why isn't anyone doing this about it, anything about this? And, and you guys are. So, I mean, it's... It's a, it's a huge deal. So, you know, thank you so much for, uh, you know, everything you've done for this space, uh, I guess, on, on behalf of the people with Bind. And uh, thanks yeah. for agreeing to do this interview. And you can hear the chorus yeah. of, of young, hungry children behind us. But yeah. um, my my pleasure, and I'm so glad thank that you. you're, you're a part of this group as well and um, look forward to future discussions and collaborations. Yes, yeah, same here. Yeah, have, have a nice okay. evening. Go, go and take care of the hungry children. <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want to see the full video interview, we also post these to YouTube. Just go to Wittering Psychiatry on YouTube to find those. You'll also find several YouTube exclusive videos from Drs. Yosef and Marissa posted several times a week. Finally, if you need help with your drug taper, getting a second opinion, or managing your post-acute withdrawal, come visit us at WittdurringPsychiatry.com. Our sole focus is on helping patients regain control of their lives and achieve optimal mental health on as little medications as possible.